Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Thursday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's program, well, the announcement. For our next generation, who should have more than we can imagine. Because opportunity and success in Georgia shouldn't be determined by your zip code, background, or access to power. But if our Georgia is going to move to its next and greatest chapter, we're going to need leadership. Another Georgia gubernatorial bid for Democrat Stacey Abrams. We'll look at how the 2022 governor's race is taking form now that Abrams is back in. Plus, why some Cobb residents are pushing for a city of East Cobb. And here's a question. Are you having a hard time finding that perfect holiday tree? Well, you're not alone. Demand is high, but in some areas, supply is low. So what is out there? Well, we're going to check in with a neighborhood Christmas tree retailer and find out where you can get good deals. And if you can't, then just get a fake tree like I'll probably have. All that's just ahead, but we'll begin with this. As mentioned, Stacey Abrams has announced she's running for governor again. Georgia Governor Brian Kemp issued this through his official campaign, quote, with Stacey Abrams in control, Georgia would have shut down, students would have been barred from their classrooms, and woke politics would be the law of the land and the lesson plan in our schools, close quote. Kemp went on to say Stacey's never-ending campaign for power has already hurt Georgia businesses and cost our state millions, all in service to her ultimate ambition of becoming president of the United States, close quote. Speaking of a former president of the United States, well, Donald Trump is weighing in. In a statement, he said, quote, I beat her single-handedly without much of a candidate in 2018. I'll beat her again, but it'll be hard to do with Brian Kemp because the MAGA, of course, which stands for Make America Great Again, base will just not vote for him. What he did with respect to election integrity and two horribly run elections for president and then two Senate seats, close quote. That's the quote. In related news, low turnout campaigns favor the candidate who gets out and does old school politicking. That's Emory University political scientist Andre Gillespie's analysis from the Atlanta's runoff election this week. She says, look, voter turnout in Fulton County for the runoff was slightly more than 17 percent. When you have very low turnout elections, whichever candidate really puts in uh, the shoe leather politicking, knocks on doors, uh, you know, counts folks to make sure that their supporters uh, can get out to vote. That really can actually help an insurgent candidate. Now, she would want to say that wins from some lesser known candidates were a result of their grassroots work, which was more effective than it would have been had there been a bigger pool of voters. Well, now back to that big political news with with regards to Democrat Stacey Abrams and her big announcement. Joining me now with his analysis. Wow. He's like a regular Atlanta based political strategist, Fred Hicks. Welcome. Hey, glad to be back, back at home. Glad you're via, you know, virtual because we'd have to have a parking space for you here at the station and don't know if people would like oh, that. I just, yeah, just put it put it around the corner and I could walk a little bit <laughs> and put you next to the Marta <laughs> next to the Marta bus stop <laughs> absolutely you know just got to burnish my street cred so uh, I'd happily do that uh, you won't let that go will you uh, let's begin here Fred um, let's talk about timing any strategy to that through your lens uh, with Stacey Evans making this announcement well yeah you know most normal candidates have about two weeks in December uh, during which they can raise money you know before everything shuts down and people start focusing on the holidays and while Stacy certainly has a national profile and I, I can't wait to see the numbers that she posts about her first 24 hours uh, but even with that you still want to give, give yourself as much runway as possible before the end of the year to to raise money and so again you usually have until about the 15th before that that spigot gets cut off a little bit there was a lot of talk, a lot of pressure. I know I heard it. You probably heard it. People saying if Stacey Abrams is going to make 
another bitch needs to do it. We need to know now. Democrats need to know this. Republicans need to know that. Uh, and want, really, no one really knew if she was going to run. She kept this very close. But as you just mentioned, doing this before the end of the year seemed to be the right time. Absolutely. And, you know, we talked about this, you and I, maybe two or three weeks ago, once the noise around Senator Perdue challenge, potentially challenging Governor Kemp, uh, once that noise reached a sort of a, a fevered pitch, that the scene or the stage was really set for Stacey Abrams to run. Uh, I think she was going to run anyway, but certainly the prospect of a bloody and expensive uh, civil war in the primary for on the Republican side had to make it all the more appealing because she's going to run, you know, unopposed. Maybe maybe someone will file, but ostensibly unopposed. Mm-hmm. And to be able to run, stack her money, so to speak, and just really be ready uh, while whoever emerges from the Republican side is bru- bruised, bloodied, and pulled far to the right, it, it makes it a very appealing prospect to go ahead and get out there and do it. So. I think the rise of of Senator Perdue uh, made what I already thought was going to happen, made it fairly inevitable. Well, now let's continue on with this Abrams effect, because we talked about this back in 2018 in terms of, you know, how Abrams at the top of that Democratic ticket would filter Mm -hmm. down for folks, you know, that were running in in statewide elections. And also now we got everyone in the state legislature that's running. Is that still the case here for 2022? Well, I think so. You know, um, we saw Lucy McBath defeat uh, Karen Handel in 2018, largely, I think, on the wings of or drafting off off the increased voter turnout that uh, state savings produced. We saw several state houses, state senate seats change hands as well. Now, the difference in 2020 is that, or 2022, is that we'll have redistricting, right? Mm-hmm. So we are, we talked about this last week. The sixth district is reconstructed. Lucy's not running for that. She's going to run in the seventh. And so with the maps that were drawn, understanding that they're they're going through the litigation process, uh, you don't have as many competitive seats. So there's not as much of an opportunity to flip um, down the ballot. But where we can see it next year is in the other statewide elections. So lieutenant governors, secretary of state, uh, especially secretary of state, because we know that Donald Trump has his eyes set squarely on Brian Kemp, the governor, and Brad Raffensperger, the SOS. And so we might see some movement there. Um, and then we also uh, might see some other candidates emerge who have not yet filed for those statewide offices. But again, with Stacey Abrams at the top of the ballot and, and Raphael Warnock, that means you're going to have a lot of money flowing into the state. You're going to have a lot of energy flowing into the state. And that makes it very appealing for candidates to, to think about running. Who knew? Because if someone had said, maybe told both of us just a few years ago, you know, the Democrats are going to be pouring a lot of money into Georgia. <laughs> <laughs> we were like, what? Wait, what are you talking about? <laughs> what? Georgia? This, this Georgia? This Georgia, Georgia? yeah. Um, let's talk about Donald Trump. Of course, he weighing in with his statement that I read it as he wrote it, folks. So don't send me, you know, your grammar corrections. I just read it the way he wrote it. Um, he still wields uh, a, a lot of power here and a lot of influence. Absolutely. You know, m- most Republicans, I would say 30 or 35 percent of the Republican primary voters identify with Donald Trump's um, version of the of the Republican Party, mm-hmm. and a lot of the research we're actually in the middle of conducting some research right now, and it seems to indicate that within the Republican primary, uh, Donald Trump is worth about twenty to thirty points in terms of his endorsement, um, which is a wide range. Really, still, still, absolutely, that, that's absolutely that's remarkable. Well, you got to remember, Rose, that nationally, um, research earlier this year showed that about 70, more than 70 percent of Republican primary voters believe that the election was stolen. And that was true here in Georgia, that they believe that as well. So if they believe that the election was stolen from Donald Trump, then there's no reason for them to move on from him um, and change their allegiance and move it elsewhere. If you're Brian Kemp, and of course, he tweeted as well, but he, his tweet was focused toward Stacey Abrams, whereas Donald Trump's tweet was focused at Stacey Abrams and Brian Kemp, if you're Brian Kemp in his campaign, how what do you do? You can't do you risk and, you know, sort of defend yourself against the president or you just focus then on the Democrats, which is what it appears Governor Brian Kemp is going to do. Well, Donald Trump has a bigger pulpit, so he cannot go to war with Donald Trump. He can't deal with Donald Trump, Vernon Jones and David Perdue in a primary. 
he has to eliminate at least one of those and, and, and train his focus on Stacey Abrams. The good news for Brian Kemp, or Governor Kemp, is I'm sure he had an amazing fundraising day as well yesterday. Because he's been raising off the prospect of a Stacey Abrams candidacy for mm -hmm. some time now, as has the uh, Georgia Republican Party and even nationally. But now that it's real, I'm sure there was a reaction on that side. Um, he already had this support at the Georgia Chamber last week. Mm -hmm. And so the more... The, the business-friendly crowd right now, because Purdue's not a candidate, um, they, they are doubling down and giving him a lot of money. And again, with Stacey Abrams, with her candidacy becoming official, I'm certain that he had a big fundraising day. But listen, he has a real problem on his hands, and that is Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. And he has another problem on his hands if David Purdue gets in that race. That's my Purdue next question, Fred. So we... we there was all talk about, okay, when is Stacey Abrams going to make the announcement? Now that question shifts over to Purdue. When are you going to make that announcement? Does he have to make his announcement soon? Because Stacey is the buzz right now. Stacey Abrams is the buzz right now. Yeah, you know, I don't think he has to. If I were him, I would wait until probably early January to do that, maybe the beginning of session or right around session. And that'll push, um, that'll push Governor Kemp to go with a more aggressive legislative agenda. So I wouldn't give him the runway. And listen, David Perdue has a has a big uh, fundraising list. He has a huge name. And the Purdue infrastructure is fairly strong in middle Georgia, where Brian Kemp has done really well in the past. So for the governor to navigate these waters where, you know, you always want to leave space to make a move towards the middle mm -hmm. in the general election, at least historically, you wanted to do that. He does, He's not going to have that luxury with a Trump-backed former U.S. senator in there. So this is not like, and no offense to Vernon Jones, I know we, we give him a hard time on the show, but. No, you give him a hard Jones time on the show. Well, you you know, we're him. together, right? No, we're not. I might have given him a little bit of a hard time. Yeah, we're you, not. We, we're we, not. we ain't together on that. <laughs> my job is to ask questions, your job is to give the answers, and my job is to question your answers. <laughs> <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. But this is not, you know, David Perdue is not. Um, is not a, a, a perennial candidate. He ran, he won, he ran and lost. He's not an also ran who that Trump's would have his, his endorsement would have to elevate this person's name ID, mm -hmm. right? So uh, David Perdue has 100% name ID. I would imagine with Republican primary voters. And if you if the Trump endorsement is indeed still worth 20 points, yeah, I remember going back to 2018. The thought going into that primary is that Casey Cagle, the lieutenant governor, would win that election. Mm -hmm. And then on an early morning tweet, Donald Trump endorsed Brian Kemp. Mm -hmm. Everything turned around. Brian Kemp races in that primary runoff to the victory, and he's off to the races. And uh, he wins the election or defeats Stacey Abrams by what, about 50, 52,000 votes, something like that. And so he could be facing just the opposite of that this time. I think if, if David Perdue can get 20, 25 points, 30 points off a Trump endorsement, He's got to figure out something. And again, with Vernon Jones, and here's, here's why Vernon Jones is really important in this case. Mm -hmm. If he stays in this race, that makes it a three-person race, and that means that you are probably going to have a runoff. So now you're not talking about a May or June election. You're talking about going into another month and a, and, and a, and a runoff, a one-month period that's going to be just as expensive, probably, or close to as expensive as the whole primary, which is great for Stacey Abrams. Great for Stacey Abrams. Well, on the Republican side, it also may be just like we talked about with Felicia Moore and Andre Dickens. Do folks have the money that they need? Because where, 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 where is folks, you know, particularly on the Republican side, Fred, you know, where will folks then put their money? Well, I think what you'll see is the independent committees putting their money towards Republican turnout. And that will that will allow the candidates to focus on persuasion and, uh, and winning voters. But if you're an outside committee, you're like, OK, look. We just have to get Republican turnout up and make sure we're getting ready for the Stacey Abrams juggernaut. Because you got to remember, Stacey Abrams, who people did not think had a shot in 2018, came within one percentage point and one and a half points of winning that election. So, and we have what 900,000 new registered voters since then, or something like that. Mm -hmm. So they're they're going to have to focus on that turnout machine. You know, we talked about the Donald Trump effect. Let's talk about President Joe Biden's effect because, look, let's be really clear, his approval rating, you know, it's like when Lionel Richie left the Commodores. People stopped. I, I know I did. I stopped listening to Commodores. You know, it it, it went down. I mean, his his approval rating is <laughs> – some people don't get that, but that's just me. Well, they did have Night Shift. I mean, that was a top that's one, Well, yeah, that's because Marvin had passed. I mean, let's be really clear about that. I mean, you know, you make a song about Marvin Gaye, yeah, it's going to do well. Come on now, work with <laughs> Very true. But President Joe Biden's approval rating, 
It's been it's been low. It's under fifty percent. I think the latest survey might maybe around forty five percent of registered voters think he's doing a, a pretty good job. Does he have a play in all of this? So the interesting thing about certainly CCM won't be like President CS- Obama's. That's for sure. Let's be clear. Absolutely. You know, even last you got to remember. You know, a lot of the excitement that we saw last year in twenty twenty was not centered around the Biden Harris ticket. It just wasn't. Um, you had C.S. Abrams doing doing fantastic work and and, her, and the constellation of organizations around her to to do turnout. But uh, like in my project that I worked in Henry County last year, we had the greatest increase uh, in the entire country from 2016 to 2020. Mm-hmm. But the focus that we put on that we did in Henry County was on the local candidates, not the presidential candidates. So I think that. That Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, uh, Senator uh, Vice President Harris, they haven't necessarily been responsible. Even last year, they weren't responsible for Democratic gains. Um, and I think looking ahead to next year, to 2022, normally in a midterm election, a president with poor or declining uh, approval ratings would greatly impact everything that happens down down the ballot and gubernatorial races and things of that nature. Mm-hmm. But we've never really seen anything or anyone like Stacey Abrams and her favorabilities with Democrats and her ability to mobilize and organize and, uh, and turn out with Democrats and Democratic leaning voters is really independent of what's going on with Joe Biden um, and, and, and Vice President Harris. So I don't think now and this is the source of the trepidation mm-hmm. that Democrats had and why there was a lot of consternation about whether or not she was going to run because without a state savings on the ballot. Yeah, vice uh, uh, the president's numbers were going to greatly dampen Democratic prospects. But with state savings on the ballot, again, she has a when you think about the work that she's done with Fair Fight and her ability, again, to mobilize and organize, that 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 gives Georgians a bit of independence from what's going on with the president. Something that people in Florida and other states really are not going to have that same luxury. They're not going to be able to enjoy that because of the presence that and the person that, that, that Stacey Abrams is. Let's talk about issues before we say goodbye, Fred. We know that we're all still in this pandemic, but do you expect it will be the familiar issues of how Georgia, as now I'm talking about the gubernatorial race, how Georgia fair during the pandemic is faring during the pandemic under governor brian kemp he will have his list of achievements i'm sure stacy's camp will have what they consider are not achievements will that be at the top yeah you know that's going to be very interesting to see how the abrams campaign handles to talk about the pandemic what would you have done mm-hmm. because you know, in the middle of the pandemic, or the start of the pandemic, there was, you know, consensus around or close to consensus around how things should be handled. And as we've moved through the Delta variant and we're dealing with the Omicron variant, uh, people are like, I don't want to go back to that. So mm-hmm. if you were strong about lockdowns and masks in March of 2021, that doesn't mess. And people were OK, great and supportive of it. If you're saying that in March of I'm sorry, 2020, and you're saying that in March of 2022, that might not go over as well. Yeah, so, people are like, well, yeah, you say that now. That's what someone right, would say. Right. Yeah. right. So the onus is really going to be on the Abrams campaign to talk about the pandemic and managing through a crisis. Governor Kemp will talk about Georgia um, having a low unemployment rate. We'll talk about Georgians having increased access to voting and, and, and record turnout in 2020. And he'll talk about the best place to do business and things of that nature. So that that's actually going to be a really tricky um, a tricky place for the Abrams campaign and one that should Kemp survive the primary, that he would really try to, um, I think, uh, an opportunity for him to exploit something there. You mentioned, but he's got to get through that primary. Very true. You mentioned Secretary of State, though, that office, any other office that you're looking at that is vulnerable? Well, I think everything's online now. I mean, so you have the a, the, the high profile positions are governor, uh, uh, Putting the U.S. Senate aside, we can't, can't forget that Senator mm-hmm. Warnock is up there, is up, and you have Herschel Walker, which will be a very interesting um, situation to see how that plays out. Mm-hmm. But putting that to the side, you have Governor, uh, Secretary of State, and the Attorney General, which are kind of the three highest profile uh, positions. And then you, you still have Labor Commissioner, and you have the Superintendent of Schools. Sure. But I think when we look at those three, those three will draw a lot of attention. And I think Lieutenant Governor, because again, you have every place where Trump, listen, I'm not a member of the Democratic Party structure like that, right? I'm not an office holder for the Georgia Democratic Party or anything like that. If I am, if I am the party and a party official, every position where, where President Trump has someone that he is uh, he's supporting, I would make sure I run a Democrat there. You got to make the choice very clear. We talked about this last year and earlier this year. When Trump is on the ballot, whether directly or indirectly, 
at least lately in 2020 um, and, and 2021, mm-hmm. he hasn't fared well in Georgia, right? So he lost his own election last year. Um, Purdue and Leffler both lost last year. So you have a three a three game losing streak, so to speak. And so if I am if I am the party, I'm trying to find viable candidates everywhere. That means that governor, that means lieutenant governor, that means secretary of state, that means attorney general. At least those four those four high profile positions where he said he's running someone. You gotta, you gotta run someone strong in the Democratic. But if side. you're a Republican who may not necessarily agree with the magna MAGA rhetoric, you know, I want to be clear because not all Republicans want to be associated with Donald Trump. Let's be clear, we've had Absolutely. folks say that. Then you are in, in the you're you're sort of perplexed. Well, what do I do? Because if you, Mayor Mitchin said, I'm running on the Donald Trump ticket or Make America Great ticket. Yeah, you're great by saying that, and you can get wins but you know for some folks they may not feel that way so what do the republicans do here well that's the the position that donald trump puts voters in and he puts um in which he puts candidates as well and donors so again as i mentioned we we've never had anyone like stacey abrams we've also never had anyone like donald trump when you lose particularly after one term you go away and you could you on the speaking circuit, write a couple of books and all that kind of stuff there to remain a force, to remain a presence and in some respects to be stronger now than you were before. Um, it's really is, is, is unheard of. So we're, we're going into uncharted waters here. Last or four years ago when you told me that or maybe it was last year when you said it would be a billion dollars spent on those Senate races. Mm-hmm. And I raised an eyebrow. I didn't believe you. And you were so correct near that. So I, I, I'll give you that. How much money are we going to see just on the governor's race, you think? Record numbers? Well, see, here's the thing. It won't just be the governor's race because remember the balance of, the yeah. balance of control of the Senate is also at play here, too, right? Because right now it's 50-50 yeah. um, with the Democrats having the tiebreaker because of the vice president. And so Georgia and then three other states are considered the tier one uh, seats that you're mm-hmm. trying to flip or hold depending on your position. So when you look at it cumulatively, with Stacey Abrams, Raphael Warnock on the line there, uh, all on the ballot at the same time. And then you have uh, uh, whoever comes out of the Republican side and, and Donald Trump, particularly if it's his candidate, um, Herschel Walker and David, David Perdue. You're t- because, and I want to say this is very, so important for your listeners, Republicans, Democrats alike. 2022 in Georgia is a test run for 2024. Sure. Said it here today, December 2nd, 2021. And so because it's a test run for 2024, you're going to see, just like we had a billion dollars last year, we're going to that's we're going to exceed that from January to the end of December. Then now, when we talked about this last year, that was just for the runoff. I think that once we get out of the primary, you're going to see one and a half, I mean, 1.5 or so billion because it's Georgia, it's Trump's future, and it's uh, control of the Senate all on the line at the same time. So nearly so two, going to run that down. Nearly $2 billion. Oh, for the for throughout the course of the entire year, absolutely. When you talk, and, and for your listeners, we're talking about the combination of hard money and soft money. Hard money is uh, that's money that goes into the direct campaign, whether it's a loan from the candidate or money that's raised. And with soft money, that's the stuff that when you hear an ad paid for by the committee for a better Georgians sure, or something that, like that. Yeah. So, man, right. you know what? So you, you know how many kids you can put through college? How many small businesses we can get going? The, the two, that's just me. <laughs> <laughs> Atlanta nah, base. You know, it would be interesting to see how that compares to the GDP of other countries. Absolutely. For sure. That's a whole other segment. Atlanta based political strategist Fred Hicks, thank you so much for taking the time on short notice as always. We appreciate you. Well, thank you for having me. Glad to be here. Your street, Take care. Your street cred went up just a little bit more. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, I'm going to keep working on it then. I'll be back next week so I can keep building on it. <laughs> Take care, Fred. <laughs> Take care. Bye-bye. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Close Look continues now. This is 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up in a 
about maybe 15, 20 minutes, we'll talk about where you can find a Christmas tree, we think, because apparently there is a shortage. That's all coming up. But first, this, according to the U.S. Census Bureau, that's about uh, the state of Georgia has about a little bit over 535 cities. Now, back in 2005, after Sandy Springs residents voted to become a city, that eventually helped to spur some other movements. There was Brookhaven, there was Dunwoody, uh, Johns Creek, Milton, Chattahoochee Hills, Peachtree Corners, just to name a few. And currently there is the city who move, Cityhood Movement by Buckhead Group. And now a committee in Cobb County pushing for the creation of the city of East Cobb. Why? Well, let's ask Craig Chapin. He's the president of the East Cobb Cityhood Committee, and he joins me now. Craig, welcome to the program. Thanks, Rose. Great to be along with you. How long have you been a Cobb County resident? That's actually a great question. I moved to East Cobb when I was six years old, so that makes me right at 50 years. So you you packed up, you personally packed up the whole family and moved them to East Cobb. I drove the U-Haul <laughs> myself. It was exciting. Tell me about East Cobb. Someone listening uh, says, you know, I don't know much about East Cobb. So, uh, Craig, how would you describe this community? So, you know, East Cobb is, is in, obviously in Cobb County. We're uh, really on the border of Roswell and the border of Sandy Springs. So we start right at the river here in, in Marietta mm-hmm. and run kind of up the Johnson Ferry corridor is my one way one way you might describe it. And East Cobb's a, a great community. I mean, you look at, at Cobb County itself, heck, it's been around since 1832. And East Cobb at the time was very, very rural and has just seen some explosive growth really over the last 30, 40, 50 years, as, mm-hmm. as we've seen a lot of Atlanta and Cobb County. You know, there hasn't been a new city in Cobb County in a long, long time. Uh, I do mean a long, long time. Um, why East Cobb Cityhood now? What's behind this? Because you represent the group, so you know, you'll know you be t- speaking for everyone. Why now? How's, what's the backstory here, Craig? Well, hey, that's a big responsibility to speak for everyone. But the um, Well, you <laughs> they put you on here. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, there's really actually four initiatives, which I, I'm sure you're aware, within mm-hmm. Cobb County right now, right? Mm-hmm. You have Mableton, you have Vinings, East, East Cobb, and, and the city of Lost Mountain. And so, you know, you, you also have another four cities, I think, that are in, in Cobb County right now, which is Marietta, Powder Springs, Ackworth, and Smyrna. Mm-hmm. And so when you really look at it, um, I personally and, and the committee, we're proud to be part of Cobb County. We're proud to be in Cobb County. But there are some areas within, you know, our, our community that we want to be able to have more of a local control, kind of a representative government. Mm-hmm. It's not more government, but it really is about how do you control things that are more representative. Like what? So local zoning is a great example of that. So, you know, right now within Cobb County, I think that Cobb County incorporates, incorporates almost 350 square miles. Mm-hmm. There's over 785,000 residents. Within the proposed city, we would have about 50,000 residents and be about 25 square miles. Within that group, we actually vote, if you live in any one section of the county of Cobb, you actually vote for the, for the commissioners mm-hmm. that's in your area and then for the chair. Well, there's a total of four commissioners in the chair, so there's a five. So you really only vote for two of five people that make all the decisions that can, that, you know, control the area that you live in. But, so but you stuck in, jointly, they still all represent the entire county, correct? They do. But each part of the county in that big of a county, I looked up one time, I think if we were a state, we'd be like the 50s, the uh, 47th to 48th largest state, just Cobb County from a from a size of people standpoint, you know, density. And so you, you take areas like, East Cobb, where the density is very, very thick. There's not a lot of new development to take place. Anything that takes place is really redevelopment because there's just not any green space to develop. Mm-hmm. Versus you go to other co- parts of Cobb County, they have a different agenda saying, hey, we have a lot of empty space. We'd like to have more density. What do you all want? Less density. I mean, it's it, it's when I say less, I'm not talking about that we're going to go knock stuff down. But just as you look sure. at what does redevelopment look like, it you know, we have school full schools we have very heavy traffic in the area like so much part of atlanta let me ask you go ahead craig no finish no no, i was just gonna say so so it's really trying to have a balanced approach as you look at what do you do when you're a full you know a fully developed area how does that how do you manage that going forward because it's different the success that got you where you are is different as you look forward do you have concerns about certain types of development or and and zoning that relates to that development that you all concerned about Uh, particularly whether it's residential commercial and i'm want to make sure we touch on single family zoning as well do you all have issues with that yeah so i i think inherently you're always concerned about when things are changing one of the things that is interesting is we've been out talking to residents within east cobb and talking about the city of east cobb and doing just the education and looking at the data and looking at the facts is You know, there's a lot of us that are very proud to be part of Cobb County and are very proud of what East Cobb is. 
The question is, is if you're here and you look at density and you're going to add more density to an area where there's no new land to really develop on, what does that look like? And we believe that the best way to approach that is to have people that live in the affected area vote to control those things in the affected area. And so instead of having representative where you've got five, you know, you take 785,000 people divided by five, we're going to take 50,000 people and divide it by six. So you're roughly going to have eight or 8,500 dollars, excuse me, eight or 8,500 people per, per commissioner, per, per council person. And so from that perspective, it gives people a lot louder voice as they speak to the people that they see daily. Are you all concerned about apartment complexes, townhomes, duplexes? Is that, are you concerned about that? You feel that doesn't fit into the identity of the culture of, of East Cobb there? Yeah, well, so we already have that within East Cobb. So it's not mm-hmm. like we're saying, you know, it's not here. I've got some, you know, right next to, to, to where I You don't I'm want any more of it is what you're saying. Well, it, from a density standpoint, it's the density that's the concern. It's not mm-hmm. It's not going to pick in one specific thing. Hey, we're opposed to apartments. That's it. No, that's not the case. The question is, when your roads are full and the schools, you know, are, are at capacity, how, how do you manage your density well? What's the trade-offs instead of just continuing to pour more and more cars and more and more people into the same limited neighborhood streets. And you all feel like you've you've been crying this, you've been saying this, and no one has been listening to you all, and that's why you feel if you have your own city, then you can control that? Is Are you saying that because if you had the representation that you felt was a voice for your, your community, then you wouldn't have to have this movement? Is that solely it? Uh, you know, I think that that's a great question. I think that's the, the way you phrase it, it, you know, makes me really think about that. I think inherently when you're able to, to take those things, the most important to you, such as zoning, you know, police and fire is one or the other code enforcement. You just have a much more candid ability to manage those things. For an example, so, you know, somebody that goes out and, and does inspections to make sure the building codes are being met. If they're traveling all over Cobb County and they're, and they're covering 385 you know, square miles is completely different than, than 25 square miles. You know, we had a, a flooding situation where there was a lot of water overrun in the flood, I guess, two or three months ago that caused a lot of private property damage. Mm-hmm. And there's been a lot of discussion. What does that look like? And so when you have inspectors that get to know an area, get to know the developer, they just get to help manage that better for the community. You and I both know, because you've been watching all this with Buckhead, you've been a resident, so you all know it. it's not easy with the cityhood movement. What's your response to people that say, okay, well, Craig, is this just also a blanket way of saying, or putting a blanket over some other issues that folks may have, whether it deal with equity, whether whether it deal with folks who say, well, we have a nice medium income of households. We want to keep it that way. How do you tell people, look, we're not trying to sound like these folks who are labeled as not my backyard folks, or we want to carve out our little community just for us because we're not happy. We, we, we're not happy with how the whole county sort of plays out in terms of demographics. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think your question does make sense. I mean, I think there's been some, some great discussions that we've had, you know, that I personally have had with people as we've talked about the East Cobb cityhood movement. What are you trying to accomplish? What's it for? I think, you know, the, the Atlanta Regional Commission came out with a study, I think was highlighted in the Marietta Daily Journal last week, where they went through and looked at the metro area and asked people, you know, hey, what's your biggest concern? And one of the things that popped, you know, out of that was, I think if I remember correctly, it was 31% for Atlanta, but in Cobb County, the number one issue people were concerned about in Cobb County was 27% has to do with crime, right? And so by us as a city taking up responsibility for, for public safety, it gives us, you know, senior citizens are, are concerned in our area, concerned about, you know, how long does it take to get an ambulance if you have an issue? How long does it take to get fire help if you have a medical issue or a fire? But that hasn't been an issue for police? you though, right? That hasn't, that, what you're talking about, with these services, has that been an issue or it has not been an issue? Because you haven't talked about that I, in terms of f- first responders. Yeah, I think that, that when, when people say, hey, these are concerns, these are things that we want to make sure that we have great service to. And you do look at the trend as it relates to response times and police and response times to fire and ambulance, things like that. You look at those trends. Those are things that you want to make sure that you stay on top of. And that but it hasn't happened, though, no, Craig. You said you're looking at a trend, but it hasn't happened. Well, no, I think we have it? seen we have seen diminished times. Is it to a point? You know, where's the tilting point that it's so problematic mm-hmm. that it's an emergency crisis? You know, are we there yet? No, I don't. I don't think that we are. But we have seen a, a decrease in, in response times. Let's walk our listeners through this actual coverage area because Cobb is big. So when we say East Cobb, then someone's saying, "Oh, it's East," but Give us the boundaries here. What are we talking about in this proposed cityhood? 
So if, if you think about the Johnson Ferry corridor that runs up Marietta, mm-hmm. in essence, you start at, at Sandy Springs at the river. Right. You'll shoot up Johnson Ferry on the right side as you're driving north is going to be you, with this proposed city would go all the way to where the Roswell Fulton border is there. Gotcha. So you kind of bump along Sandy Springs, North Springs, as it goes there, all the way up to Shallowford Road. And then on the left-hand side, as you're driving up the, cor- the Johnson Ferry corridor, you would basically come from the river once again, kind of post oak trip up to kind of Bill Murdoch to where it hits Shallowford. And that's a 20, roughly a 25 square mile area. And about 25,000 residents, so to speak. 50,000. 50,000. And do you know in terms of those residents, uh, the percentage of homeowners and the percentage of, of renters, do you know what that is? You know, I do not know that. That's actually a great question. See, now if I was doing a feasibility study, I would charge out extra because y'all don't, y'all didn't get that information. But um, <laughs> speaking of your feas- feasibility study, you've already had one conducted, correct? That is correct. And what, what came out of it? Well, what did you learn? So, um, you know, the feasibility study was an interesting process because, you know, it's something that, that the, the legislature requires as part of the process. And so um, we worked with the Georgia State uh, government group down there and they did that. Um, they go and look at other cities that are of this size, kind of proposed areas. They looked at proposed services and they basically put together not a budget because it very clearly, as they define it, is not a budget. But they're looking to say, is this fees- is this city feasible? Would there mm-hmm. have to be a, an increase in taxes or not? What would that look like? And so our study came back and showed that we can provide all the services that we proposed and would do so with it without inc- an increase in any of the rates and would be able to do that with about a three million dollar surplus. And so you're saying that this study reveals that you wouldn't property taxes wouldn't go up. There wouldn't be any other increases. So you're talking about fire and police police. You'd have and, your own. Yep. We would do then zoning and, and code enforcement. You picking up trash and all that too? No, we would not. So there's about 16 services that are Cobb County. And once again, we're still in Cobb County and proud of Cobb mm-hmm. County. But of those 16 services, we would propose that we take up public safety zoning and um, code enforcement, those three of the 16. And, and so we take, we take, you know, with, with that comes revenue that comes that people that we're paying today mm-hmm. for some of those services. And that's per Georgia code. And then you look at what your expenses are going to be to run the services an independent study. That's in essence what the feasibility study does. Much like the Buckhead, what is the tax base percentage for this area, the proposal for East Cobb City, the city of East Cobb? What what what's that tax base look like when when you talk about Cobb County? Because we know in Buckhead, we know we know the importance of it. We do. Let's just be really clear. East yeah, Cobb. So I'm, I, could you ask that one more time? I didn't quite follow. Okay, the so the 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 tax bracket. Okay, the percentage of, of taxpayers in East Cobb. How much okay. of that will be coming out of total for Cobb County in terms of how much money would Cobb County be losing in a sense because your taxpayers would be paying a lot of money to the city too, correct? So, so yes, if I, if I understand your question correctly, is if you look at the feasibility study, our revenues would be about $27 million. Those $27 million is not an increase in what's being paid. So that would be what Cobb County is receiving, but we're also taking the burden of all those services and all the labor and, and all the equipment and everything that's needed to do those services with the revenue. So how big a police force do you think you would need? So that in the feasibility study identifies, I think roughly, uh, it's in the seven in the high seventies. I think it's seventy seven, seventy eight, mm-hmm. if I remember correctly. Uh, listener just tweeted, Shannon, East Cobb does not want cityhood. This is not about what is best for the community, but they keep trying to repackage it. Opposition stretches across party lines, and we don't want it. What are you hearing? Is this split? Do you have a sizable amount of folks who are behind the cityhood here? Yeah, so I think, you know, we've been doing, trying to do education as it relates to stuff. We've host, hosted, you know, some online Zooms with COVID. You know, we, we've gone that path. We're hoping in January, February timeframe that we will be able to host a um, in-person thing to continue to educate. We kind of do a, a straw poll as it, as it relates to, um, you know, when we're doing these Zoom calls. Mm-hmm. And those straw, straw polls show, you know, I think we've got basically about 30, 30-something percent in April, 40% in May and 43% in November that support um, East Cobb becoming a city. That mm-hmm. doesn't mean that they would vote for it. They sure. vote support the referendum. We, we saw about 38% decided in April, 36 undecided in May, and 44 undecided in November. And the, op- the opposed went from 28% in April, 23 in May, 
and 14 in November. So, you know, you still have a lot of people saying, hey, I need more information, which sure. is what our East Cobb Cityhood goal is. And you also need some legislative support here. Uh, before I let you go, Craig, what are you hearing from lawmakers, state lawmakers that represent your district? Are you getting some support there? Yes, we are. We got we got Rep. Rep. Uh, Matt Dollar, of course, who is a sponsor of our bill, and then we have a couple of senators that, that will be carrying it to the Senate floor from that perspective. You know, the, the process is, is you're probably aware, January, February, March, what sometime the legislature will take up this bill, Buckhead. They'll take up the Mableton, Vinings, um, Lost Mountain, all of those, and they'll vote individually on whether it goes to referendum. Referendum is, is a term I, I've had to learn and help explain. It basically means the people in the affected sure. city get, get the right to vote, either up, up or down. And so, you know, we're hopeful that, that we'll get the right to vote. We think that that's what representative government's all about, is that, you know, the, the people get a chance to vote yes or no. And so I think that from a cityhood committee's perspective, our job is to help provide as much data as we can, be transparent, provide links to as much data as we can so that people can be educated when they vote. And finally, so there is nothing that can happen within Cobb County, within the, the government structure that would make you all want to change your mind and say, okay, maybe we can work through a process. There's no compromise. You are dead set on becoming the city of East Cobb. Yeah, I think I think for within the city of East Cobb, as the other cities that are trying to vote in the four cities that already exist in Cobb County, you know, they're saying, hey, there's some things, not everything, you know, we're, we're not succeeding and trying to be put this wall up around us. That's not anything what this is like. This is saying there's some things such as public safety, zoning and code enforcement that we think are best managed by people that live in the area and where you vote for the people and they're accountable to the And board. folks have said it's that. Just, it, it's representative government it, by my definition. You have said that, Craig, and as many folks will tell you, what it looks like, what it is are always two different things. You know that. But we can have you come back. Will you come back and talk I'd to love, me? I'd love to. It's a little bit hard when you're following somebody as good as Fred was, though. <laughs> <laughs> Next time, can I go first? Absolutely. Because he's, he's pretty, he's brilliant. All right. Craig Chapin, the president of the East Cobb Cityhood Committee. Thank you so much for taking the time. We're going to follow this. We want you all to come back as well, okay? Thanks, Rose. Take care. All right now. Everybody dance and be merry. Speaking of being merry, raise your hand if you already found that perfect holiday tree. Perhaps all you wanted was a wreath. Well, apparently, allegedly, a combination of supply chain issues and climate change are reportedly leading to a shortage of both real and even artificial Christmas trees. How much truth is in all that? Well, joining me now is Matt Bowman. He's owner of Tradition Tree Tradition Trees over in the Little Five Points neighborhood. Matt, welcome. Thanks for taking the time. Glad to be here. How long has Tradition Trees been around? We've been around since 2006. We we started in Little Five uh, in 2006, and we've got uh, three other locations around the city. Now, do are you you're in the industry? So I'm just going to ask you. Let's get this out of the way. Is there a shortage of Christmas trees? There is definitely a shortage of Christmas trees. Uh, some sizes are more effective than others, but. Uh, Undoubtedly, there is not enough Christmas trees in the pipeline for everyone that wants. What size are we talking about, Matt? That's most. Worst important. shortages in some of the bigger sizes, the eight to nines, nine to tens, um, even some seven to eights. I think there should be enough five to six and six to seven, uh, getting close at that point. But um, yeah, there's just not not quite enough trees o- overall. And Matt, trees of that size, typically they would have been planted how long ago? Um, believe it or not, close to 10 years, uh, the, the, there's a, there's 11 different types of Christmas trees yeah. recognized by the National Christmas Tree Association, but the most popular in, uh, in the Southeast anyway, is the, the Fraser fir, Fraser fir. and, uh, fir trees in general are, are more popular as Christmas trees. They kind of hold up a little bit better, uh, once you get them inside the home and they take about a foot, they grow about a foot a year. So normally we'll get a seedling in the ground and it's already two or three years old and then, uh, and it's about a foot, foot and a half uh, at that point. And then you can just do the math, right? So a foot a year after that. So a, a tree that's about a foot in the ground when it's planted to get to be a six or seven footer is, is closer to seven or eight years old. And for our listeners who may not be aware, what regions for those that you that you all typically sell, 
Where do you all get them from? North Carolina, Colorado, where do you all get them from? Uh, actually, North Carolina, yep. The, the Fraser fir is native to the Southern Appalachians, and uh, there's still some uh, old growth forests in the in the high mountains of the of the Southern Appalachians. So um, we get most of ours from uh, North Carolina, Western North Carolina, up in the mountains. We get a few from uh, Eastern Tennessee as well, but uh, all the way up into Pennsylvania, folks, to grow Fraser fir. You heard me coming into the program where we talked about the supply chain and then climate change. I don't know if you get into all of that, but through your lens, how do you see this? What is the reason for the shortage? So there's there's a couple factors that are at play here. And uh, I know it's kind of a tired phrase, but a perfect storm actually does, uh, does, does fit in here. So one of the challenges is actually from, believe it or not, the recession of, of 2008, 2009, 2010. Farmers simply just did not have as much money to put trees back in the ground. So back pre-2008, farmers would generally plant three trees for every one that they cut, right? So there was always plenty in the pipeline to to regenerate for for years to come. And and that really is the hardest part of a farmer's job is to, uh, you know, look into the crystal ball really 10 years out to determine how many trees uh, he or she should put in the ground in that season. So anyway, back in in, uh, 2008, 2009, 2010, really even into 2011, Farmers kind of uh, did the reverse of that ratio. So they were uh, cutting three for every one they planted. Hmm. So here we are, you know, eight, nine, ten years out, and uh, we're seeing the effects of that. We're just there simply was not as many trees in the ground. So that's challenge number one. Uh, the next challenge would then be uh, there was a lot of fires on the West Coast, uh, California and Oregon, where they grow a lot of West Coast product, a lot of West Coast trees. Yeah, not Fraser fir, but Noble fir, Douglas fir. There's some other other varieties that they grow out on the West Coast. And um, this year there was a lot of uh, farm acres that was uh, burnt, unfortunately. Um, And just the dry conditions and heat in general affected some of the crops. So uh, simply not as many trees coming out of the ground out west. So uh, retailers across the country have kind of looked uh, really wherever they can to find trees and just the supply is, is not not quite there. And this is all uh, on the this is all on the domestic side on, on the correct, North America yeah. on the North American side. I mean, I, I imagine. Yeah, I would call it North American because Canada's having kind of same problems. Mm-hmm. There's uh, a lot of balsam fir out of Canada, um, and again, there's been some uh, a little bit of Robin Peter to pay Paul over the past couple of years. When when you have a buyer uh, screaming for Christmas trees and you've got trees in the ground that you can sell today, but you maybe didn't intend to cut until you know, a year from now or two years from now, because that was going to make up your inventory down the road. A lot of farmers did just took the money today, right? So they mm-hmm. cut some trees. They cut more trees in seasons past to make up for that shortage because they had demand. They had, they just had demand for it. Let me ask you this, Matt. How early on do you all put in your order? Is it like last year after Christmas that you put in your Pretty order much. for I this? Mean, I, I'm, I'm working on it all the time. Uh, I'm I'm a as a as an independent retailer, um, I'm obviously not as big as some of the big box stores, but uh, we really uh, we're committed to it. So I just try to take care of our customers as best we can. So realistically, I am kind of I take a little bit of a break, but but by the end of February, I'm definitely making phone calls and I've got some good relationships that I've had for a long time that are that are helpful for us. But I try to help, I help out some church groups and some other smaller retailers as well. So I kind of act as a broker and. Uh, yeah, I just, you know, I try to find as many trees as I can just to, um, it's nice to be able to try to have control of them. But those of us who have been in the business a long time, I've been dealing with this shortage for about four years now. Mm-hmm. We're kind of on the tail end of it. I think numbers are going to start to get better next year. And certainly by 2023, we should be um, in pretty good condition. This year, again, we were talking about other factors with supply chain. Um, again, I, I don't have any data to back this up. I've just heard it from um, folks in the industry, but there's uh, even like artificial trees, most of those are produced in China. So they're either sitting on a dock in, in China or maybe they're in a boat right now sitting off one of the ports, but just not able to get here. So I know that there's been um, just some, again, just the supply chain constraints. And as everyone knows, Christmas seems to get earlier and earlier. People start wanting to celebrate right yeah. away after so or uh, really after Halloween even. Um, so that demand curve has changed in terms of the dates when we where we normally expect to have sold uh, let's say, you know, four or five years ago, the, the uh, this coming weekend would usually be the busiest weekend of the year for us. But really, the past three or four years, that's changed where the, right after Thanksgiving seems to be when we're selling a bunch. We sold more Christmas trees before Thanksgiving this year than I ever have before. So you can just tell. I think, you know, a little bit of that is just fatigue of the world, right? People want something fun to think about. Obviously, the kids are into Christmas and stuff. So people kind of right away want to have something fun to think about. 
You think you'll sell out? That's a good thing though, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We will we will certainly sell out. I normally try to be able to uh, be full through like December 20th or so and last couple of days will sell out. But realistically, uh, I mean, I'm hoping I have some trees left over for, uh, for late in the season. There's some folks who uh, just their tradition is to put the tree up later in the season. Um, but we're telling everybody for, from inquiry standpoint, Hey, if you, if you're, if you're ready, go get it. I mean, they really might not be too many in the, in the market after, um, you know, this weekend's good. Probably next weekend is things are going to start getting pretty thin. And I always love to ask this question as we wrap up, what do you want folks to know those tips they should definitely, where they, whether they get the tree from you or whomever, what do you want them to know about selecting that perfect Christmas tree? Sure. And if you start with, please measure, because folks should know to measure the ceiling. In their house. You're exactly right. Yeah. It's funny. People think, Oh, I, uh, we ask them what size tree they're looking for and they think, Oh, you know, I don't know. So I kind of tell everybody to do the arm test, go in the room where you want to put your tree, figure out if you can touch the ceiling. If you can come close to touching the ceiling is a good idea to figure out what kind of, what size tree you want. Um, I try to recommend going to small businesses. I'm a small business guy. There's a lot of small mom and pops out there. There's some other, uh, uh, you know, church groups or baseball teams, folks doing it as a fundraiser. We always like to support those folks uh, when you can. Uh, hopefully the, the retailer is doing a good job of taking care of the tree. They've kept the tree in shade. Uh, hopefully they've been able to water it a little bit. Um, not every retailer is able to do that. Uh, and a, a good freshness test is, if, especially if you're having one of the short needle trees, is to kind of pull back on the branch. And if you end up with a bunch of needles in your palm, uh, you probably want to pick another one. All right. Matt Bowman, owner of Tradition Trees. Of course, they are over in Little Five Points neighborhood. That's where they began, but they have a location somewhere near you. Matt, thank you so much for taking the time. We really appreciate it. Good information there. Thank you so much. Thank you, Rose. Have a great Christmas. You too. Happy holidays. Okay. And that's it for this edition of Closer Look. A reminder to let us know your thoughts on today's program or any other. Send me an email, rose at wabe.org. And if you missed any of today's program, it's always online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m. as well as in our podcast. So subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Go get your tree. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us, WABE politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE.